Welcome to the Eureka Moment. So my guest this afternoon is David Prenti, and uh, we go back many years. It's been a long time, uh, and not only have we gotten to work together, but you've become a good friend mm. and uh, someone that uh, I admire in many ways, not just from a standpoint of your accomplishments uh, in your work life, but um, just the way you conduct yourself uh, spiritually. I think you and I are on the same path in many ways. And, uh, and it's been great to have you involved with, uh, not only just discussions we've had, but you've helped me with my, my group, the Sunday school class. You've been great. a great guest speaker for that, which I'm always been appreciative. So, uh, I, I welcome today, David Printy. Good to be here, Kurt. And, uh, it's a mutual admiration society. <laughs> <laughs> it's always nice when two people like each other. Right. <laughs> Well, I, I, I always like to, to give people a little sense of where people are from. Mm. Uh, tell us a little bit about where you grew up. Where, mm. You know, the young David Printy, where, where, where are you originally from? Uh, Rochester, New York. I'm the fourth of five uh, sons in the family. We had my three older brothers were pre-World War II, and then two of us younger ones came along after the war. And so that was our home and uh, a busy place with five, uh, five boys. So you grew up there, and then um, um, after Rochester, where did you go off to go to school? I went to William Penn uh, University, a Quaker school. I wasn't supposed to go to that school. Um, I was supposed to go to another university, but I was rather independent. And so my father said, great, here's a $100 bill and good luck. <laughs> <laughs> he was still supportive, but... I wasn't following their lead. No. So you, you, so now you're on your own, right? Clearly totally. on your own, right? So um, William Penn, you you did did you graduate there? And I know you did military service. So yeah. how did that? How did those two come together? Well, it's quite something. Yes, a Quaker school, Vietnam era, a biology graduate and biology and psychology, and um, I invited um, the recruiters from all the military services to come to our campus during the Vietnam War. Um, quite interesting time. And um, actually, the school became quite supportive. Uh, it was quite interesting that they really uh, supported diversity of views and things at that time, even though it was totally against the Quaker philosophy. Um, Friends Service Committee was sending supplies to the North Vietnamese at the time. Um, and as a result of that, um, I... Um, was approached by the U.S. Air Force recruiter, and I thought it'd be f better to fly than walk in the jungle. <laughs> and so uh, never, I loved airplanes since a youngster, and I used to sneak into the airports and things. And um, I took an exam, and they said you could uh, qualify for pilot training, and that's what I did. From the, So I graduated in the summer, and I joined the Air Force in September and headed off to officer school first in uh, January of 69. Okay. Ancient history. It's a, yeah. Well, you know, this is called the Eureka moment in, in large part because um, things like that, I, I believe, uh, you know, had some effect on your life, right? That, that decision. Major. <laughs> okay. Talk a little bit about that. How, how, how did that, first of all, you know, I think, you know, having a son that's now in the air force, mm. uh, I think you, you, you make decisions not knowing where the path those decisions will take you on, right? So that maybe is, you could talk a little bit about your, your experience. Yeah. Well, first of all, I was excited to fly airplanes. And as a youngster, and I was 20 years old, right, graduated, um, I headed off and didn't 
totally appreciate it. But first of all, we went to officer school. And in officer school, they have a command as you graduate through the classes, your class when you're kind of seniors, I'll call it, uh, have a uh, command staff, much like the regular officers had over the school. And I was chosen to be the chaplain for the officer school. And uh, it put me in uh, leadership rank and I had privileges. And um, um, we ran some, uh, we ran programs in inner city San Antonio, uh, to help to really impoverished people. And that was my uh, beginning. And then from there, I headed off to uh, pilot training in Big Spring, Texas. And during that period of time, again, the war was going on and we didn't know exactly where we'd go. And um, so during that uh, period of time, my father was diagnosed with emphysema terminal. And so the Air Force, interesting enough, uh, sent me to Rome, New York, so that I wouldn't be too far from my father. Hmm. And that was quite nice. And so I started flying out of Rome, New York. And then um, just two years later, they sent me to Vietnam after some more training. Okay. Yeah. So, and now we're 1971? Yes, 1971. Um, And during my time in Vietnam, um, I became very disillusioned uh, with a lot of the decisions because there's a lot of political decisions during the Vietnam War that people didn't necessarily like. Uh, bad guys could run into a Michelin rubber plantation and we weren't allowed to bomb the rubber plantations, hmm. uh, things like that. Um, um, it became very, uh, I use the word bizarre. And uh, one day I hung up on a, a two-star general. Uh, <laughs> There's always that little rebel side to you, is there not? Well, I was running at that time. I, so that was the first time I went back to Vietnam again. And I ran the um, the rescue missions for the bombing of Hanoi in December of 1972. Okay. And we were winding down. And in one year, one week, uh, we lost um, 10 planes and eight pilots. Oh, jeez. It was a really amazing time. We were flying basically unarmed aircraft to find targets and we were just sitting ducks. Uh, and you were fact, flying those missions, right? I was flying those missions. In fact, the History Channel uh, title of the show was called uh, Suicide Mission is the actual show's name. And uh, so I was flying those. I survived. Um, and But you were shot down, were you not? Well, I got a, a hole in my tail, but I got the plane back to the basin on the ground. Okay. But it was pretty wild. I think I've seen a picture and yes. it was, it was not just a little hole, right? It, it was a miracle. It was, um, it was in the tail and the rudder cable was uh, cut. So it de-stressed the rudder. And so, um, the metal was almost cut all the way through. There was about an inch left on each spar. And they said, if the rudder was still intact and I pushed on the rudder pedal, it would have snapped off. Huh. So um, I had a couple other planes came up alongside of me and watched me as I got the plane back uh, on the ground safely. Lucky for all of us that that happened. Huh? Yeah, I guess. So um, after service and your time in Vietnam, um, what were your thoughts? Because you saw a lot. Mm. You saw a lot of young men not make it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And had your own experiences that were, you know, yeah, I got to believe at some point you thought, well, you know, why, why not me? Why mm. then? Why not me? Right. Mm. How did that shape where you, what you decided after, after service? Well, I think even the time in Vietnam, um, my faith has always been a major part of my life. And so I was very involved in, uh, 
uh, chapel on the base, encouraging people. And um, in Da Nang, there was orphanages that I tried to work in. After a while, I couldn't, that really emotionally became too much for me. Interesting enough, I had to back away from it. Hmm. It was just hard to comprehend what was going on. So I came back to the States. Um, a son was born uh, just before I left. So and you get married while you were in the Air Force? In college. In college. My, okay, I, we missed that. I yeah. didn't realize you were married that early. I knew yeah. you were married early. But I was... My mother actually had to sign for me because I wasn't, I was 20 years old when I was married and the state okay. required 21 at that time for men and women 18. Uh, it was interesting times. So my uh, mother signed, she said she never would, but when I asked her, she did. And so um, my wife was a nurse and working at a VA hospital and um, I was still finishing my study. She graduated before me. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I had a son, yeah. which- Another pivot point, right? Charles, yes. All right. And when you have a son, that sort of changes your thinking about what you might want to do next? Very much so. Um, and when I, it was quite, when I came back from Vietnam, he was afraid of my voice. You know, having a man in the house. Right. was really quite something. It took a while to adjust to that. And I was always nervous about loud sounds and things because we got, the base I was on, we got bombarded almost every night. Last time I went, there wasn't any U.S. troops to protect us. So I was assigned to a Vietnamese uh, base, if you can imagine. Jeez. And um, so we had to kind of take care of ourselves. So it took a while for me to adjust. But I did some research at the time of what to do. Because originally I was going to be a career Air Force officer. I loved it. Right. And I was on a path and they sent me to schools and all kinds of things. But I became really disillusioned and my commanding officer backed me 100%. He thought I was being mistreated because I've been to Vietnam twice. I was coming back to the U.S. And he found out that the unit they were assigning me to was temporarily assigned in Thailand, not the U.S. So he said, this is unfair. We think it was Major General Green that uh, I hung up. We Somehow we think he got involved. <laughs> the one that you uh, had a Hung little... up. Yeah. Excuse me, sir. I'm fighting a war. <laughs> I'll never forget it. It was, it was great. <laughs> I'll never forget this. He was an army general. I was in the Air Force. And um, so he said, this is unfair. Would you like to go home because there's going to be cutbacks? The war's winding down. I said, yes, sir. And 10 days later, I was on a plane back to the States. Um, landed in California. We were told to put on civilian clothes so we wouldn't be harassed. Right. And uh, got on uh, Western Airlines, uh, now Delta, and flew home to Minneapolis, where my wife was from. That was our home then. And I did some research then what to do. And um, it just was my nature that I had interest in leadership. And I found in the corporate world that folks that were in leadership uh, typically came through uh, marketing and sales at that time. I kind of looked at their profiles. And I had a science background, but I needed business training. So I joined a company called uh, Connecticut General Life Insurance, mm -hmm. and they had a planning institute and a business program before you could work for them. So I signed up with them and went through their training and got accounting, you know, all the business courses you really right. need and um, had some success with them. And um, that started my business career. So um, you've now gotten some business background. You've done a stint with an insurance company. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, so it's giving you a little, uh, how much of it, how much of it was it? Did you really start to understand how insurance industry worked? Because you've spent a lot of time in the healthcare industry. Mm -hmm. So was that sort of that first 
insight into how third-party pairs work and how that whole environment works. Uh, was that was that sort of your introductory? It was kind of an introductory, but my wife uh, was the nurse and she was an entrepreneur. So she, um, you may be familiar, there's something called TENS devices, pain control, electronic pain control. Okay, yes. She was a pioneer in that. Okay. So she kept coming home and with these ideas and was wondering how to fund them and how people would get paid for the service. So I started researching that and I was quite successful with Connecticut general. And so at the age of 27, I was recruited to be president of a, another financial service company. Um, and I joined that organization and started in understanding better the economics of life insurance and uh, decided that maybe there's some other avenues. And uh, I didn't last long at that company. On my 28th birthday, I was fired. And <laughs> <laughs> it was a very exciting day. <laughs> and I was feeling kind of bad about it. And uh, a friend Did of mine- Did you know it was coming? I, well, yes. Um, I challenged, I discovered that inside the organization, sales organization, uh, there, there were some major ethical lapses and I think illegal activity. And I brought it to the attention um, and at the time it became, you know, these are some of the biggest producers in the company. And, uh, the chairman of the board came, um, it was a holding company and he, um, let it be known that the president of the holding company, it was either he, he was going to leave or I was going to leave. And the president of the holding company had been there for 25 years. So I remember Roman was his name. I said, Roman, I think it's an easy decision. I think this is the day you're going to fire me and you're going to continue. So that's what we did. Right. <laughs> and I headed out. So. Uh, but I was hired, right? I was out of work for about two days. Right. Um, the people that were at Connecticut General had joined an investment banking New York Stock Exchange company. Okay. Trying to figure about life insurance and annuities. And. Um, they asked me if I wouldn't come and uh, help them uh, build that business. And so that's when I moved to that company. Okay. And where, where did, where were you? Uh, Minneapolis. Looking? Still in Minneapolis. Yes. Okay. Yes. So I was in Minneapolis and um, um, we got that company started. It was doing very well. And, uh, and I was so 28, 30, yeah. About, and then 32 years old, I was uh, nominated by the governor of Minnesota to be the commissioner of economic development. Okay. And I was nominated, though, by the chief competitor of the company I was working for. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Which is quite fascinating. That, that is interesting. Yeah. Now, did you, had you formulate a friendship? How did that happen? Yeah, there was. It was a Bible study, uh, um, Piper Jaffrey uh, Investment Banking right. Firm. So it was a Bobby Piper that basically really built the company. Um, he and the chairman of our company were professional colleagues and... Uh, I started in a Bible study with him. Older, They're all older fellows. And I was just um, asked to join and developed a relationship. And uh, he thought I could really do a great job for the new governor. So as the head of economic development, um, you did something interesting. You started the first healthcare biotech fund. How would you term it? Yeah, well, we came up with the idea. There was Silicon Valley, remember in California? And right. I came up with Medical Alley was the marketing concept. And so uh, between Minneapolis and the Mayo Clinic and the clinic in Wisconsin, we called that Medical Alley. And it was, you know, Minneapolis was Medtronic, cardiac, you know, it was a big medical Device, technology right? company. 
a lot of other innovations. There used to be the old control data computer company, uh, data card, the whole concept of the medical strip that's on your credit card. Mm -hmm. um, yes. So I asked these leaders to be my advisory board at the state. And um, sure, after I completed, I was doing that, I decided to step away from that. Those gentlemen um, encouraged me to start a venture capital fund. And that's, they backed me. And that's how I started my first fund in uh, 1983. Wow. That's, yep. uh, it's a pretty interesting journey to get to your, your first fund, right? Wasn't it? Yeah. That's a, it's, it's an interesting path. And, and it wasn't predetermined, right? It Not just sort of happened. It, yes. They approached me. Bill Drake, the founder of Data Card Corporation, uh, approached me and said, David, your, your strategy and what you're doing. Um, and I had started a small business finance agency at the state. It was a um, you know, companies could have industrial revenue bonds so they could finance some of their buildings tax-free, but small businesses couldn't do that. So I came up with the idea that we could pool a lot of small business needs and mm -hmm. then the state would issue the bonds. And we got uh, SBA as federal and Merrill Lynch to do it. And uh, they saw some of this innovation and they said, why don't we really provide some seed capital to these companies as well? Mm. And our big success story was Cirrus Aircraft. Okay. That's um, based out of Duluth, Minnesota, which was kind of odd. Um, but they had a new airplane that they're going to have an automatic parachute if the engine stopped. <laughs> and Cirrus, of course, is a very successful uh, small aircraft company. Right. Day. So we did many things like that. Interesting. So there's a portfolio of companies that was quite successful. The venture capital fund was bought by a, a bank that's now part of uh, Bank of America. Um, so I... I had to find another job. So. <laughs> so how many years did you run that fund, that first fund? It was just about five years okay. uh, when we were uh, bought out. Okay. Mm -hmm. So now you said uh, you needed to look for another job, right? Well, what was interesting, we sold the investment fund um, to a bank. And then out of a clear blue, the bank asked me if I wouldn't join them in a new role. So I became senior vice president of Michigan National Bank for all their investment operations across the country. So, uh, but you weren't involved with the fund any longer. They no. bought the fund, they moved you to a new position within That's the bank. That's correct. So the fund um, was set up separately and it was grown uh, with their own funding and it became a whole separate entity. And uh, I became a senior vice president of, uh, of the Michigan National Bank. Um, and uh, I've flying between Minneapolis and uh, Detroit, Michigan for a while as a commuter. Was it a, was a large part of the bank at that time? Was their investment group a large component of the bank or was your, were they looking for you to, to grow it? Because you'd been successful in creating something from nothing, right? So Correct. So the idea was that we'd grow uh, just organically what we had, but they wanted me to um, go out and search for acquisitions. Okay. So that's what, what my real target was. And we uh, put together a portfolio of private uh, management companies and brought them into the bank. And at that, I mean, that's ancient history, 1986 to 89. And uh, we grew the portfolio by almost $4 billion over that period of time. That was a big number back then. A big number. Yes. Really big number. Yes. Right. I yes. mean, that, that was, it was, how many funds were there of that size? I mean, that's not. No, it was a major one. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Really interesting. Yeah, it was a fun time. So, so what brought that to a conclusion? Because well, you're, you're having great success, so you grew at that 
that big in a relatively short period of time. Correct. But I wasn't so interested in the commute back and forth to Detroit, to be honest with you. Okay. (laughs) And uh, they still had an office in Minneapolis, but it was, it was just for me to go to really. And over time it was going to change. And the same group of gentlemen that approached me about my venture capital fund approached me about running for governor of the state of Minnesota. Okay. So, um, That's what I love. There's so many twists to your life. <laughs> we're not even to the good stuff yet. The stuff that I know about, a lot of this I didn't right. know about, but we're not even to the really, really amazing things So, yet. So I negotiated an exit and uh, from uh, the bank. Uh, well, it was a, more than a bank. It was a financial service company. Independence One was the name of the holding company. And uh, um, I then decided to run for governor. And, um, um, and it was during that period of time that my... F- late wife passed away and I was a single dad. It was really a crazy. So you had three children at this time. I had two, two, that, two, two children at, at this time. time, two boys. So when I first started, it was kind of a jumping, but when I uh, first started with a bank, that's when my uh, late wife passed away and I was a single dad. And, and, um, um, had she been sick for a long David? Five years. So she this was cancer. something you were, you were running the business, commuting, doing all this. And she's, she's, Struggling, battling cancer. Yeah, but she, yes, it was quite a, she was in her, one of her companies. Uh, she took, I think within the last week of her life, she just said, I have to go visit. This is just who she was. So she went, went back to the factory and checked it all out before she passed away. What kind of company is she? It was a TENS devices. So a pain okay, control so devices. About. Yeah. She also uh, came up with a um, Centromed, it was called. It was a tr- centrifugal blood pump to replace, uh, you know, open heart surgery, the old roller pumps. And she came up with an idea with engineers um, how to um, attach an anticoagulant to the pump. Uh So it wouldn't, so she was at, she sold at the 3M and she was still involved and so those types of things. Wow, amazing person. She was, she was a business woman of the year and Minnesota, all kinds of, she was uh, she built a foundation at the University of Minnesota School of Nursing. There's still a lectureship in her name to this day. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's great. So single dad now. Yeah. And um, and then there was a, um, my wife that I married was my late wife's best friend. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And so there was a fundraising event for Israel, actually, that I was invited to. And it was a couple's event. And I felt kind of strange. I had no interest in dating anybody. It was just anyways, it wasn't my thing. Right. After that, and I needed a safe date, so I asked Beth if she would go to the dinner with me. I guess it became a safe date, right? <laughs> it did, except she said it was the most boring evening she ever had. <laughs> she actually said that. Really inspired me. And um, anyways, we ended up getting married, and we had our little daughter, and and um, and then I decided to run for governor as a newlywed. Can you imagine? And that's what so, we did. But Beth, Beth's got a little bit of an interesting career as well, right? Well, she's a very successful opera and symphony s- singer from the Metropolitan Opera. She was Diva of the Year, uh, perfume named after her. She had a great career. Yeah. And so she was traveling uh, about eight months of the year at the time. And our daughter and nanny would fly with her and the boys and I would show up at the openings. It was kind of an interesting life we had. <laughs> yeah, really yep. interesting. So yeah. tell me about 
running for governor because you're a business guy. You've right. created and built companies. You're, yes. You know, uh, and now politics is a much different game, right? It really is. I had been involved as a commissioner. I'd been involved in um, really being the chief fundraiser for sen- U.S. senatorial campaigns. I thought I knew what was going on. I was in D.C. a lot. Um, but when I ran for governor, I learned uh, a whole different behind-the-scenes uh, activities. Uh, tremendous uh, pressure. Uh, governors in some states are very powerful regarding funding, mm-hmm. particularly highways, construction, uh, educational funding. So all kinds of uh, pressure were applied. Um, and um, even my good friends, I remember, came into my office one day with certain organized labor guys and really put the arm on me. I was quite shocked. <laughs> you but find out who your real friends are. I learned a lot. We had a very successful campaign and um, it got torpedoed right at the end. Bef- Anyways, it's a whole story that was pretty dirty politics beyond description. And um, at the last minute, all of a sudden I w- lost the nomination. There was a process there of a nominated by the party. Okay. And all of a sudden I lost it at the last minute. I was way ahead. And, um, and then, uh, three months later, uh, the fellow that beat me out had to leave the campaign for, uh, inappropriate behavior with kids. Oh, jeez! And so it was a debacle. Uh, and, um, so was it, was it one of those situations where you just weren't the party's guy or was it that this other guy had, how, how does there, there was some uh, one particular U.S. congressman uh, that was a big kingmaker, and he, I believe, thought that I was um, um, dangerous for him to have a for me. I could somebody he couldn't control. Correct, and the other person he could, and so he did everything uh, to make sure the other fellow got nominated, and uh, they were pretty effective at it. I've met other people that've run for governor of mm. different states. I won't bring up their names and had some very candid conversations mm. with them. Mm. And I was really amazed by some of the things that they told me about what they learned when you start to run. Yes. That uh, one of them had told me that you have these great ideas of things you want to do, right? Some things mm. you want to do to help your constituents, right? right? And then you get into the position of running and you realize that you can't say everything you want to do because it doesn't always play well. Correct. Right. And so you start to then, you know, you start a dialogue that really isn't your dialogue. Right. And then after a while, you start to wonder what I'm doing. Correct. Many issues. Uh, They try to tie you in knots and you're told, and I had the best consultants. um, We had the best fundraising. We set records actually for contributions. And so we had the best people, but it was quite interesting. Um, um, how they would coach you <laughs> and what you needed to do. But I didn't totally appreciate the the power that people perceived governors had and the economic impact and the spending and how that drove political decisions. I was really shocked by that. And I also, I mean, you've got a much better insight into this, having lived it inside of it. But as you look at the landscape today, our political landscape today, mm. How do you reflect back on that experience and how do you see, do you see very similar? Is it sort of the same old, same old as it was back then? Or do you think that it's a much different landscape today in our political environment than it was when you were running? I think the negatives that I experienced have been amplified. So it's Mm -hmm. almost like they've been let loose. 
and uh, the lack of general ethics and uh, accountability have deteriorated tremendously. Um, I mean, when I was commissioner, I worked with Hubert Humphrey's son, Skippy. Anyways, he became attorney general and we call him Skippy. <laughs> but I worked with all these and I was a Republican and I worked very effectively with them. And um, uh, I was nominated by a Democratic governor after I retired or stepped down from commissioner and I was in business. I was appointed by governor, Democratic governors to serve in roles. Jimmy Carter nominated me. There used to be the Synthetic Fuels Commission. I was So it was a much different era than it is now. And I think now the most of it is just purely fighting for power and control. And it's not really trying to do the right thing. That's at least that's my editorial. And it's, and it seems like it's just, it, it's just the, the alignment of the parties. There's no desire at all mm. to work with others from the other side. Doesn't work. It just, it just, there's no desire to do it at all. No. And if you, and, and I think the system is almost in a quandary because you have to work together at some point, right? Or you're mm -hmm. paralyzed. Correct. And, but they can't get out of, they, it's like they've, they've made a decision and now they can't back off of it. It's just a, it's just a, um, almost a grudge match for power. It, mm -hmm. It's really quite something to see because in the medical area that I'm in now, I go to DC and, and not a registered lobbyist, but I um, actually uh, present position papers with Congress and decision makers. And it's totally different. Um, my office in Connecticut, so I had to call on the entire Connecticut delegation. Uh, and most of them aren't politically aligned with me, just philosophically. But I was just amazed in my discussions with them uh, what a what their real interests are. Um, and it's almost like roadblocks than trying to move things forward. Mm -hmm. it, it was really quite shocking to me. Interesting. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it, it bothers me that, um, that the press um, never really lets you see what really is going on. Mm -hmm. There's always, a, there, there's always a message uh, that they're trying to communicate. And the news is not the news any longer. No. And that, um, that there really isn't a desire to work together. And, you know, if you, if you read, presidential history, right? It's not like it's the first time that we've had this kind of activity, <laughs> this kind of problem. Right. Um, I, I think, I don't know if I said it on a previous podcast before, but Maya, my daughter, my youngest, mm. she was doing a paper years ago on the, the fall of the Roman empire. Mm. And she, she comes and she was, I don't know, maybe in, I, I, think, I think she was in middle school. She said, dad, a lot of the same things that led to the fall of the Roman empire present, here in the United Today. States, mm. does that mean we're going to fail? And I said, you know, our forefathers figured a hundred years mm. that this political experiment would last a hundred years. And we've gotten a little bit more out of it than that. But they said man's greed and desire and thirst for power would bring it down. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we're seeing things today that aren't really in the best interest of a government that's for the people, by the people, right? It's a real battle. And, um, we'll just see where it all comes out, but you know, it's not just the U S I mean, as you know, I've spent a Correct. lot of time in, in, outside the U S and the world really depends upon us as a model. And, um, I had some 
folks recently said they came back, they were did their graduate work in the US and they came back for some event and they said, what has happened? <laughs> Things are so different. Yes. But that's where we are. So run for governor. Mm -hmm. um, another life lesson, or, or, you know, a eureka moment, if you will. So then, then where from there? Well, from there, um, at the end that I was recruited by a, a few businesses that knew me and I took over um, a company um, and I felt the company needed to be moved out of Minnesota, really needed to come to New England. Um, my wife was from New England. I spent a lot of time every summer in uh, Maine as a youngster. And so we moved the company here uh, in 1992. And that's how we then really became established as residents of New England. Um, that uh, company was not a big success, I'll just say. <laughs> um, but during that period of time, and then my time with the bank, I was on the board of a company called GRP Development. Okay. And um, they asked me to get more involved, and I built a healthcare portfolio of investments for them, uh, former all former Michigan National Bankers. Um, and then there's another group building real estate uh, ventures. And they came a decision, I forget what year it was, maybe 95 or so, that they wanted to sell off the health care and just focus on their real estate. And so um, universities that I've been interacting with asked me, would for, I was always digging around their research labs looking for commercial opportunities. And they said, won't you come in um, and help us build strategies? And I got involved and all of a sudden they started to ask me, well, you know, things aren't working out so well financially for the medical school. Could you figure out what to do with a medical school? And that's how it all started. So, so this I, is when I met you. This is when you were UMDNJ? Yes. That's because that's when I met you. Yes. And we started doing work together to sort of develop new processes around how to do clinical research. Correct. So I was recruited then away. I was with um, uh, some clinical faculties. I built Boston IVF, which is the largest infertility practice in the States. And from there, um, they didn't, they always wanted leadership with medical degrees and they brought me in until I got it successful. <laughs> and then I was recruited by UMD and J to be the managing directors of what they call their centers of excellence. So that's how I got started to build strategies and research. That's what I've been doing and got more involved through the years of the actual operations. And that's, yeah, we built. Uh, the Institute for Clinical Research and Training, mm -hmm. and a good friend of ours uh, joined, yes. and uh, we launched it with graduate uh, uh, courses, and uh, the students came from uh, uh, the pharmacy industry in New Jersey. And so then um, uh, a lot of the leadership at UMDNJ left to go to Drexel. That's correct. And you went with them. I stayed behind and all of a sudden I got a phone call <laughs> from Dr. Stevenson, a dear friend. And he said, you've got to come down here and help us. <laughs> so I said, well, let's talk about it. Uh, so that's when I was recruited by the university president. Um, they had taken over a medical school, um, had gone through $240 million of capital because it came out of bankruptcy. There's a big story. And they didn't know what they were doing next. And so he hired me to um, join the medical school, but I reported directly to the university president, not to the dean, because mm. he was kind of suspicious of what was going on. 
And um, that's when we really got deeply involved in Philadelphia clinical trials program and turned around the medical school. They lost money for three years and 11th, 11 months we had turned it around. They made money. And uh, that's where I had come down and you guys got me down there doing some Correct. work for a while. Yes. Until the politics all caught up. This in University of Pennsylvania. We got forced <laughs> to go home back to Boston with our tails between our legs. <laughs> And I came back to Boston as well. <laughs> right. Not long after. No. Right. right? But, uh, yep. So that was sort of when you sort of did your first sort of, I won't call it a retirement, but you then decided to do something very, very different. I and, did. Um, well, I was contacted by the owner of the World Healthcare Congress, and he had an idea that um, there's an opportunity to provide some more educational opportunities. So we created the Physicians Academy and I used my contacts and we had a partnership with the Harvard School, now T.C. Chan, uh, Chan uh, School of Public Health, the business school. Uh, there also was a joint MBA, MD program at Harvard, but it was led by a professor from MIT. People don't know that. Um, he was a dear friend. So we put this Physicians Academy together um, we had 22 medical schools. It was quite successful. And it was during that period of time that a charity that I had worked for called me and asked me to do some research on a hospital that someone wanted to give the charity that was based in the Middle East. So uh, the thing I'll never forget is that one day that I was talking to you and you told me you, that you, were, you were moving. Correct. <laughs> so talk a little bit about that move. Well, I had been... Uh, volunteering and training African nationals for this charity called Cure International. And I really admired the the charity because they didn't want to keep bringing expats in. They wanted to train nationals and really generate independence in their countries and train the locals. And so I was doing that on my vacations. So I was going to Kenya and they said, we've got this opportunity. Someone wants to give us a hospital, another charity. It's in the United Arab Emirates. And I was in Nairobi. And I said, where's the United Arab Emirates? And they said, well, get on the plane and you'll land there. <laughs> so that's what I did. So I flew into uh, UAE, did uh, due diligence, financial, because they knew that no one uh, would want to donate money to a wealthy country like the Arab Emirates. And they didn't want to take on any financial risks. So I um, did my work, came back, uh, filed my report, and... The whole essence of my report was the influence that we could have in the Muslim world for uh, really peace and reconciliation was the whole strategy. And I wrote it up and delivered the report, and that was the end of it, and I was still doing my thing. Um, and I got a call from the chairman and said, well, your study shows that there's an opportunity and we could take over this hospital, and your strategy sounds you know, very doable. And we're willing to accept this gift if you'll go over there and run the hospital for us. And um, I thought they were kidding. Um, and even their board members said that David would, David and Beth would never do anything like this. <laughs> yeah, Beth, I'm sure she's all really excited about going. Well, she was teaching at Harvard at the time, and she was very happy with what she was doing. And um, it was kind of like this was her last uh, gig, if you would. Right. And she enjoyed her time on Cambridge very much. And so I um, talked to the chairman of the World Healthcare Congress and he said, oh, David, you're always trying to do good. 
I'll never forget. It was really funny. So he says, why don't you go do it, but give me time to find someone. And within 10 days, a gentleman literally called on us that was trying to do something and he was the perfect fit. It was quite something. So um, I agreed with Vidar that this is, this is your man. Let's go for it. So I left in, uh, in about three months after the board approached me, I guess. And I, uh, Went to the United Arab Emirates on May 16th, uh, 2006. Um, I invited Beth to come and visit me in July of that year. She thought it was one of my consulting gigs. She didn't realize that you were taking up residence. No, she had no idea. She just thought it was another- Never came up in conversation. No. (laughs) (laughs) So she came and she sat in my office uh, in the desert and said, I can see God has called you to do this. She really was very sincere. But she says, I've not received the same calling. (laughs) Just, I was speechless. (laughs) And then she said, but I've been. Did you think that once she got there, maybe she'd like. Like it. Like it. And you think that. Get excited. No, No. not at all. (laughs) And then she said, but uh, I've been called to be your wife. And then uh, she said, give me time. I'll go back. I'll talk to the my department heads and chairman of the department and see if there's a way. Cause she had contracts both at Harvard and Salem state. And she went back and uh, the chairman at Harvard was the most understanding and he allowed her to adjust her uh, class schedule. So she'd be done by Thanksgiving instead of normal, just Mm pre-Christmas Salem state wasn't as cooperative, but we worked it out. And um, so she said, we're all set. So we put our house up for sale, sold, and we packed up all our goods on uh, Thanksgiving, the week before Thanksgiving. And um, yeah, bef- those three days, they packed everything. And then they loaded it on the week after Thanksgiving. And all of our earthly uh, belongings went into uh, containers and put on a ship in Boston. And we headed to the Middle East. So you and I could probably talk all night because I, over the years, we've mm-hmm. always stayed in touch. Mm-hmm. And you've told me many, many stories mm-hmm. about your time in the Middle East, mm. but talk a little bit about um, what you experienced, what you got when you got there, mm. and sort of what you did. Because I always think it's amazing what you were able to do with that hospital. Mm. Um, not only from a standpoint of the capital investment you were able to make and mm. really growing and building that institution, but I think more importantly with the people. Mm. Right. Maybe talk a little bit about that. Like what it was when you got there and then what transformation did, were you able to put into place during your tenure there? Well, I think that obviously it's a total different world. And um, I tried to understand how they thought in that part of the world. I just couldn't quite figure out things in the beginning because they really operated differently. So I learned that there wasn't right and wrong. There was honor and shame. So they made many decisions that would protect their honor, right? Instead of what was right and wrong sometimes. So I had to understand that. Um, And so my finance department, if we had trouble with numbers or money that month, he um, felt he shouldn't tell me any negative things because that would bring dishonor on me. And his responsibility was to protect my honor. Hmm. So I said, Prakash... I really have to know the truth. (laughs) Um, So that was something internally. Our staff came from 34 different countries. So um, 
I said each, I had to honor their cultures, but I said, we really respect, but when you come to the hospital, we're going to develop Oasis hospital culture. So when you walk in the front door, we're going to have a unique culture under our own and that each one of you will enrich that culture, but it has to be different because we all think differently. We have to think the same. So that was the first effort and that took a while and education and, but I can imagine there was a lot of pushback. This is not the norm in no, that part of the world. Not at all. And no one really tries to do that. No. To invoke a, 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 a different culture. Correct. A unified culture. That's correct. It was quite contrary. So my strategy was that I, want, I really felt that we needed to be a joint commission accredited hospital. We had to have standards. Um, it was just evolving the healthcare system. And so I used um, a joint commission survey and application as my method for bringing us all together. So it wasn't me, but it was, wasn't my ideas. And, but during that process, there was tremendous pushback. There was one Iraqi urologist that said, stood up in a meeting and said, what is this? You're just trying to force American standards on us. Don't you think I went to a good medical school in Baghdad? I'll never forget it. <laughs> and I said, well, first of all, this is Joint Commission International. These aren't U.S. standards. These are accepted international standards. And usually takes 24 months uh, to get this done. We got it done in six months. And we were the first private hospital accredited in, in that part of the world. One other government hospital had been accredited before. So how, how did you do that? Because you're, you're not just putting new process in place mm. and educating, but you're changing culture and you're going against, in many cases, thousands of years of beliefs and practices. Correct. I think the thing was that number one, they knew that I respected them. I really cared about each person. Um, and um, over time, we showed them what we had to do to be truly successful. And we used another project with the government. The government wanted to move to a new health system, electronic claims. They didn't have any of that in place. Mm -hmm. And so I said, why don't we be an example for the government that this can be achieved? And so we became the first hospital to be able to file uh, health claims electronically in the country. And that helped politically, right? Because this was a goal. Right. But everyone said it can't be done. We did it. So it forced all the other hospitals to comply with a vision. And I was fortunate to develop a good relationship with a ruling family. And so that brought, um, um, it brought honor to the hospital and the staff felt that. I mean, when the royal family comes to visit the hospital and cared about it, then they felt that kind of the vision that I had for the hospital was very important. So um, can you talk a little bit about how you were able to, I, I know at one point, I think you told me stories about it, labor del delivery, right? Mm -hmm. uh, hospital did predominantly labor and delivery. Correct. Right. Yes. And that women couldn't come in the front door of the hospital. Right. Right. When Correct. you got there, they had to enter through a door yes. in the room that they would be in. Correct. Right. Um, um, the, the main, uh, the locals, we'll call them expats was different, but the locals, uh, the rooms had two doors. Uh, one door was to the outside that they came in through that door. And then there's another door inside the hospital that was used. So they came in many times they'd bring their own furniture. Sounds strange, doesn't it? But they'd really come uh, Bedouins. And um, so I would go to their rooms and they'd sit on the floors and eat their meals and wanted me to eat meals with them and things like that. Um, um, they just wanted their 
culture to be there. So we really honored that. So we'd clear out rooms, store furniture. Uh, their trucks would show up and they'd bring in whatever they wanted. Um, and so by doing that, we built great relationships. I uh, recruited a local advisory board of uh, local uh, women and men. Had They had two separate advisory boards. They couldn't meet together. And there were people of influence in the community, but also people that really had a lot to contribute. And uh, the chairman of it was a senior medical director for the military healthcare system. And he became a tremendous advocate for me in the country. You, you have one story you told me years ago, and maybe you'll share it today, uh, about a trip you made to the Royal Palace with one of the the prince, the royal prince's uh, uh, brothers, I think it was. Mm. And you told this whole story about coming up to the front of the palace and going in, and and you had taken a gift that day. Mm. And uh, maybe you could talk about that, because I think it speaks to what you've been able to do to really not just, um, to not only talk about your beliefs, but be able to get other people to accept them. Mm in a way that is not typical mm. given the culture and what is the norm. Mm. And uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that because I think it's a, a real statement too. I think a lot of everything you've accomplished um, is sort of encapsulated in that story. Well, it was quite a, a special time where the crown prince of Abu Dhabi, he's the most powerful person in the Gulf. And you'll see him in the news today, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed. Um, we had built a trusting relationship over time. And within nine months, he lost two of his brothers. Mm-hmm. One was killed in a, a, um, a glider accident in Morocco. And then another brother um, who was in charge of their oil industry, um, his helicopter crashed while he was um, inspecting offshore platforms and was killed. And it was really a very sad time. And... Um, and so I thought about how, what could I do to comfort them? Because they also um, are very fatalistic. Um, they don't show emotions usually when someone passes away. Um, and yet I've discovered that they do have emotions. And so I was wondering how I could ex- just share that I had some comfort and concern for him. Because it was really important what it, to their, their whole family. And so I had been given a very special handwritten Arabic Bible um, that was intended to be a gift someday to someone in the region. And so I wrote a letter um, one day. It was the same day I felt inspired. So I wrote a letter to him and just explained that I had lost. My younger brother was a helicopter pilot during Vietnam, and I had lost him in a helicopter crash. And, um, and that I found comfort in God's word in our Bible in Geo, which they respect, by the way, if people know the truth. Um, and um, and even in the Quran, it speaks about the people of the book, and we're people of the book, Christians. So I found the scripture, and I wrote this letter, and I carried this really uh, very special Bible. It was worth thousands of dollars. It was an amazing uh, book. And I brought it to the palace with me that day and just uh, greeted him as we do. And I, but it was in a public forum, wasn't well, it? Well, it was a big majlis where it's a big room with everyone that you imagine wearing their white, not too many people with suits were there. And I just uh, met him in the middle of the room and gave him the gift. And it was interesting that he really, because before I went there, I want to know if somebody saw this book, would they recognize what it was in Arabic? And my staff said, absolutely, they'll know what it is. 
And so I took it to him and he just looked at the binding and on the binding explained. And he just thanked me. He hadn't read my letter yet because it was inside, but he just grasped it. And um, he wouldn't put it down. It was quite fascinating. And they have these discussions, um, and, you know, executives from Exxon would come in or somebody like that and uh, other royal members of other countries. And then finally he put the book down on the like, coffee table in front of him. And, um, and, and so at the end of the meeting, then he came up to me and he thanked me, which was quite fascinating. And then a couple of weeks later, his uh, chief of staff and head of security approached me and said that his highness really appreciated that, that you really, you really cared about him and his family. And no one brought gifts to them. I didn't know this. He, they always gave gifts to everyone else. So he was like, couldn't believe that somebody actually came. Right. You, I mean, they wealthiest, I mean, they make Amazon and Bezos. People look like paupers. You, people have no, he gave me money for a 110 bed hospital. And I figured out it was eight hours of his income from his oil companies. Get the idea? Unbelievable. It was a lot of money. A lot of money. Hundreds of millions, yes, right? right. <laughs> it wasn't, <laughs> right. So I thought, so no one would bring gifts to him. And so I had actually given him a gift and they said he was just really taken back by it. And then his staff uh, was curious about our Bible as a result of that. And they asked me if I would bring other, because um, they wanted to see, read the same verse that I had given to the, his highness. So, um, You've given this gift, but I think you had also said too, wasn't there a dinner afterwards where the Bible was there? Yes. And there was some pushback from other people. And um, I was the only um, Western person at the dinner. I was the only person with a suit and tie on. And um, you could see that there was some pushback because there's some people that don't, have the same view of tolerance that the Royal family has. And uh, so he stood up and said to the people then, would we be here today if they hadn't come? So this hospital was a Christian mission hospital and his mother had lost six children, miscarriages. He was the first one that was born successful. Hmm. And then he had three more brothers. So he really had a connection to the Christian doctors and then to this hospital. And I had kind of given rebirth to this hospital. So the end product of that gift was he came to our hospital to visit one day and we had other Arabic, because it was a Christian hospital. Right. So we had Arabic Bibles available because there's a lot of Arab Christians people aren't aware of. I mean, Christianity, the hub of Christianity was Baghdad, Iraq, you know. So, at one time. So people forget about this. Right. And so he came and held it up and said, isn't this a beautiful uh, book? And it looks a lot like our book. And so he allowed us then um, to put an Arabic Bible in each one of our hospital rooms, kind of like Gideon would do in, right. here in the America. But he allowed that for the first time. And we did many other things as a result of that. So <clears throat> through, um, through your efforts to help them establish a, a real hospital, a hospital that could really meet the needs of the community. Because the, the hospital you went to originally was what, 40 beds? Yes. And you were seeing how many patients a month with 40 beds? Well, we, 
we delivered hundreds of babies. <laughs> so you got a lot of use out of those beds. It was, um, it was remarkable. Uh, we competed with a government hospital that had 600 beds and uh, we did 30% of all the deliveries in the town, just to give you an idea. Jeez. It was quite unbelievable. Something. Yeah. We did 4,000 deliveries in a year. Unbelievable. Yep. A 40 bed hospital. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then you built something much larger. Yeah, beautiful. We had a design and uh, it was funded by the royal family. And and not only were you able to do that, but talk a little bit about the diversity of your staff. You said 34 countries? Yes. Right? Yes. And the, the, the people that came to this hospital, how many different countries were represented by those that came to this particular hospital? Well, the patients actually spoke 102 different languages. Jeez. So we had to provide translation services and it was remarkable um, that the staff we had spoke many different languages. It was quite remarkable. So folks from Pakistan and India spoke many different dialects of their countries. Um, we had local, um, um, I would, there's an area between Pakistan um, and Afghanistan. It's a no man's land and they have no country or no passports, but some of them got to the UAE. Right. And they worked there um, in the early days and they spoke multiple languages. So, uh, yeah, 34 different passports and um, patients spoke 102 different languages. Unbelievable. Yeah. So tell me about your thoughts today as we look at what's going on in the Middle East, United States. Mm -hmm. um, what kind of things can we be doing to build better connections between these different ways of thinking, you know, we've got, um, you know, th there's, you've sort of seen it because you live there, mm. right? And you live there in a way that not many people do, meaning you became part of the community. You became a member of the community. You contributed to the community. Mm. You weren't just passing by. No. Right. In fact, Beth and I decided that when we actually got a home to live in, we lived at the hospital. They had their own housing, but we decided to get a home that was in a very diverse neighborhood um, Afghan workers, Pakistani, Indians, everybody. And that's where our home was. So we actually, we really were integrated into the, the, the culture of the town and not try to live our own separate lives uh, as many expats actually do. They kind of get in the islands. I think the key thing is number one, to just respect the people. Um, and part of that comes from my faith that every individual is really a gift from God and God values every person. And uh, even if they're troublemakers, I'll say, you disagree with them, um, they're still God's creation. And so there's some, you have to convey uh, inherent respect for them and try to understand where they come from, what their thinking is, how they make their decisions. And that's one of the things I push back on business schools. You know, we have different methods of management, but each individual learns differently. They react differently. They require different management styles to get them to do what you need to do. And so I think it's a philosophy that my mother taught me that she said, you know, people can only give you what they have. Mm -hmm. And so you have to make the best of what they have. And so I've always approached people uh, that way. And I just wanted to really um, demonstrate respect for them. And then a lot of the people never really experienced sincere caring. Someone never really cared for them. 
And we tried to find ways to do that. I think it's not only no one's ever cared, but that there's, there's never the display mm. of uh, emotion, care, and compassion. Right. And so, and, and we know that people aren't devoid of it. No. Right. That because they don't show it doesn't mean they don't have it. Yeah. There's a very, still a minister and I won't mention who is, but a key leader in the United Arab Emirates, a very distinguished, his son just graduated from the university of Southern California, came back and a week before his marriage died in an automobile accident. Hmm. Very sad. And I was very close to this fellow. And so I went, to a, a meeting, and again, I went to the funeral, I'll call it funeral service, and everyone was so stoic and just, you know, there's just this formality of greeting and walking through, and I said, this doesn't seem real to me. So he was going to speak at a conference, uh, another meeting, and again, he's a top government official, and so I went to the the presentation, and then I made an effort to walk, be outside the hall when he walked out and I just walked up to him and men there um, hold hands sometimes when they walk. I was very uncomfortable when it happened to me the first time <laughs> for this man to grab my hand. <laughs> and I discovered this was really them showing you that they're really your good friend. And so I grabbed his hand to walk out with him and he really appreciated it. And I said, I'm just, you know, I'm really so sorry for the loss of your son. And tears came down because no one would give him a chance to express that. Right. So we became very close friends. And so when I worked on trying to expand religious freedom in the country, um, I was able to get the government to give land for other churches. And there was an Indian church, uh, St. Thomas, um, kind of a variation of Eastern Orthodox and a Catholic church. Yeah. But when St. Thomas actually traveled to India, he established a church there. So they were building the church. And I got the land for him and there's a dedication and this minister, he came to the dedication. Oh, and great. so he got out of his car and I'm standing there with all these Indians. Cause I was invited cause I helped get the land and he grabbed my hand again and he wanted me to go in with him. And I said, sir, this, I'm very honored you asked me, but this is really this Bishop from it's his event. And I think I'd like to introduce you to him and have you go in. I'll sit right behind you. So that's what we did. Good. Good. So I, um, today, I, what what's the next? I, mean, I know you're running a physician group now in Connecticut, right? Yeah. A, a practice mm -hmm. um, that you're leading mm -hmm. and uh, active there. Um, but what's the next chapter for you? Because there's always, I know you say you're going to retire, but uh, I don't know if I believe it. So <laughs> what, what's next? That's a... Uh, that's actually a very good question, Kurt, because I'm uh, Beth and I are really spending time thinking about it and praying about it and really wonder what we should or I should do, we want to do. And um, first of all, I'm in a working group at the Hudson Institute. This is an international think tank on foreign policy. And so I'm in D.C. Um, um, for a few days every month working on um, persecuted Christians and religious pluralism in the Middle East for so policy kind of recommendations. And that has of great interest. So I still am connected um, mm -hmm. and interacting in the Middle East. Um, and then um, the other thing is I still believe that there's some healthcare, cost of healthcare is destroying the middle class in America. Uh, it has to be fixed. And so I'm thinking about if there's some other 
I've been effective in Connecticut demonstrating that you can provide top quality care at less money. We've we've proven that. And Aetna told us we are the best quality group in all of Connecticut, and we spent 12% less money than any other hmm. group. So it can be done. It's not easy. It was very it's not easy. <laughs> and it's, it's not it's, easy to get there and it's not easy to sustain it, right? The sustainability is the difficult thing. In healthcare, everyone, their natural instinct is go back the way they were doing things because right. they were trained. They're really craftspeople. You know, they were taught by mentors in medical school and, and, and whoever taught them they think is the best. Right. And so it's very difficult to uh, implement and sustain change. Um, but we've been doing that, but um, I'm in the process of the group is going to join up It's 600 doctors and they're going to be joining a bigger organization, I think within the next nine months. So I'm looking for a place that we may be able to develop some unique strategies to uh, impact the local community. And uh, we're looking at some areas that are uh, more economically challenged Okay. To see if we can't experiment with this. So there is another chapter. There is. It looks like there is. Uh, and uh, Beth thinks maybe that could be my last. <laughs> I heard that the last time you said, this is my last one. Well, I found in, in the Bible, there's no, I can't find the word retire. No. It's not there. No. So, um, and I enjoy what I'm doing. We're impacting people's lives for good, uh, both their health and also economically, I mean, people are under tremendous economic pressure when it comes to the cost of healthcare. And um, it's a battle that needs to be fought. And um, there's some things going on in healthcare that are, I think are just outrageous and I want to fix them. I think it's great. So, and and I, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm a little younger, but I can't understand the retirement thing. Mm. I really don't. What, what, uh, what else would I do that's more gratifying and more interesting than staying engaged, right? And trying to do something. Um, I, I like you. I love what I do. I think I'm very fortunate to be mm -hmm. able to do it. Um, we're, we get to make a, a, a small difference at the individual level every day, and we get to make on occasion a big difference. And right. uh, um, I don't know why I would want to sit around on a beach as opposed to doing that. So it's it's just I don't I can't imagine. And one of my models is a gentleman that's um, a really good friend of ours in Maine. He just turned 86, and he's chairman of a, a railroad in Oklahoma. Think about that. And he goes back and forth, mostly stays in Maine now remotely with all the communication tools we have. But he uh, is alive, enjoying it, uh, still has a freedom. You know, we go together in the summer in our boats and things like that. Um, but he... Uh, he feels that's a great model, and um, and uh, so right now, George is my uh, mentor. <laughs> I um, years ago uh, when I started in consulting, uh, a gentleman Sam Monica, I'll never forget him. He's a great guy. He was the uh, senior vice president of sales and marketing for Park Davis, mm. and he was in his eighties at that point. Mm. He always used to wear a suit and tie to work every mm. single day. And one day he said, "Come on, son, I'm going to go show you how to work a hospital." <laughs> and, uh, so he used to take me out and go into the hospitals and, uh, it, you know, it just all the nurses would hug him. The doctors would come over and put their arms around the guy. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, so we, we did that and he, and I said, Sam, you're, you're 80. Why are you still doing this? 
And he said, if you stop using your mind, you stop using your body, everything stops. Mm. And he said, so as long as God allows me to get up every morning and put the suit on and go to work, he said, I'm going to keep doing yep. it. And, uh, and he did. And I know he eventually passed away and I'd lost track of him because he and his wife got quite ill and then mm. they got, went into a home, but, um, inspirational guy. He was a really inspirational guy. The other thing he told me was, you know how you can tell a urologist when you go into the hospital? They're the guys that wash their hands before they go to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That was his, uh, but uh, no, I, I, Well, my I, mother retired at 85. So 85, 85. That was her goal. And, um, and then she just lived two years longer. It was really quite, quite striking. Well, so my next door neighbor's 84. Mm -hmm. And the other day, or the other day, this last summer, um, saw him walking, working across the street on a fence. There's mm -hmm. a gate that, that to the, to the pad, the field across the street. Mm -hmm. And I saw him over there and I saw a gentleman pull up in a pickup truck and get out of his truck. And I walked down. And so Nat's 84 and his buddy is 92 mm -hmm. and they're putting this gate up. Yep. So I figured, well, maybe I should help them. Right. <laughs> so we get the gate up and we put it up and it turns out that this 92 year old gentleman, um, still works every day. Hmm. He works at a company up in New Hampshire that makes medical equipment. And he's in charge of building this special crates when they ship equipment all well, over the world. world. And he has a workshop and it, it, you know, and I'm helping them do this and we're cutting wood and we're, we're drilling holes and his eyes are better than mine nice. and his hands are steady as could be. And uh, so I asked him why at 92, he still went to work every day. And he said, my wife passed. All my friends are gone. Mm. And he said, and work gives me a place to go. It gives me purpose. Mm. And he goes, and it keeps me busy and keeps me engaged. Yeah. So he said, what else would I do? Right. It's, it's a great, great message. Great value. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I always enjoy being able to spend time with you. And, uh, you know, uh, so many conversations over the years, I wished others could hear mm. just, uh, just the, the journey you've been on and the journey you continue to take and the lives you've impacted. And, uh, and so I appreciate you as a friend. I appreciate all you do for everyone around you. And uh, thank you for being here today. Well, thanks for having me. Take care.